Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I have the pleasure of introducing um, people that I consider friends, um, Brian and Jill Harden. And uh, let me take you back for a minute um, as I do this, just to give you, for those that don't know them, um, I remember a day being pretty much like today outside, and uh, it was about three or four years ago. And I remember um, I was sitting on my couch, I was actually laying on my couch in my, li- in my living room, and um, I started thinking about things, and I, I do that a lot. My wife yells at me all the time. I do that to her a lot. She's, she tells me, just take that somewhere else, will you? Just go, go talk to somebody. But I was sitting, and I was thinking, and I'm thinking, you know, I call myself a Christian, and I do, and I, you know, we were all trying to aspire, but I was like, I've never read this whole book through. Like, I'm looking at the Bible, and I'm saying, I have this Bible with all this truth in it, and I'm like, and I call myself a Christian, and I could recall the parts, you know, you, you start a verse, I could finish it, you know, we can highlight all the promises, right? But I never read it through, and I said, boy, you know, I don't want to finish my journey and say, gee, I never really read this. And, you know, I'm going to talk to you guys for a minute because I know you're probably like me. It reminded me of how many of you guys like when you buy a new electronic or a car or something, right? There's an owner's manual, right? Have you seen those? (laughs) Do we use those? Do we read those? No, I don't read them. (laughs) And and when we get those, you know, we kind of like, oh, that's great. And we put it aside. And what do we do? We run to it when we need something, right? Oh, I can't figure this out. Let me go to the owner's manual. Let me see if the owner's manual has it. So um, I'm going to read you something because um, as I introduced Brian, um, he said something in, in part of a quote that he has in his new book, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, he said, before you start reading the Bible, you honestly have to put away your presuppositions about what the Bible is. It's a story and not a manual. So when you start reading it in that manner, you start to find yourself in the pages rather than looking for instructions about what not to do. And I thought that was so impactful. And uh, it's part of the reason why I'm so excited to have Brian here speak to us. Um, Brian is um, Brian and Jill have the dailyaudiobible.com. You've heard me talk about it before. And it's a wonderful way to do just what I said. If you want to go through the Bible in a year, um, there are so many nuggets that I have taken away uh, from since that moment three or four years ago and notes and pages of things that I would not have and I would not have experienced if I didn't dive in to his ministry. Um, and I, I can only tell you that because of that, I say it's a life-changing ministry. And and I know there are other reading you know, sites and programs, and that's cool, and I'm sure they're great. But this is the one that changed my life. So that's all I can say, right? Um, let me just say a couple things about Brian. Um, I think he mentioned last night they get about 250,000 people every day that are um, listening to this. And they touch millions of people around the world. Um, and it's no small endeavor, believe me. Um, his wife, Jill, is here who's recorded. Uh, she's a Christian recording artist. And they have five kids. Am I right, five? Yes, good. Um, we have five kids. Two of them are here today. Ezekiel's sleeping, and uh, Max is here as well, and uh, he's a very gifted uh, young man as well, we found out. Um, Brian has, in his past, uh, been a music uh, producer in the Christian um, music industry, uh, Grammy and Dove Award nominated. 
Um, so he knows a little something about that. Um, very talented man. And he has three books that he's written. And again, uh, they're in the back, I'm sure. At the end, he'll talk to you about that. Passages, um, Reframe, and the newest book, Sneezing Jesus, which we're happy to hear about this morning. I will tell you also, as an aside, Reframe is another book that I feel like I need to read every year. If you've never read it, get it. It will change your life, too. It will change the way you look at God. So anyway, without further ado, I'm honored and privileged to call up Brian to have Jill share her musical talents with us this morning as well. Please welcome them with open arms this morning as Brian shares the word with us. Are we on? Bam. How's everybody? Oh, no. Are you kidding? Oh! All right, now we're set. Now, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey. Let's pretend we're all in an airplane together. Buckle up. As you can see, the wind, you know, it could be it could be choppy in here this morning because we're going to try to answer a couple questions. Simple ones, ones that you probably all have answers to. Why am I here? And what am I supposed to do? And uh, and to kind of get at this, we got to talk about a number of things. We have to talk about. The most compelling thing about Jesus that we overlook the most, we have to talk about the humanity of the Bible. We have to talk about Taylor Swift lyrics. Uh, we have to talk about beating up the bad guys. We have to talk about pandemics. And we have to talk about this little Greek word called enabramisato. So uh, let's just pretend we're all on a nice little flight down to Nashville in the rolling hills of Tennessee and uh, try to get you there safely. There, uh, you know, if I start to bore you, there are parachutes under the seats <laughs> and uh, you just kind of float outside. But hopefully, hopefully that won't happen. Okay. One of the most compelling things about Jesus is one of the things that we ignore the most and suppress and diminish the most. So when we're, we're thinking about Jesus, a, a good majority of the time, our thoughts are focused on the last couple of days of his life. And there are really good, valid reasons for this. The last couple of days of Jesus' life, uh, you know, that's the story of Christ's passion. So it's the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, which happens to be the story of our salvation. So, of course, we would focus our attention there. But we would also have to admit that focusing our attention on a couple of days of anyone's life is an incomplete story. Uh, 
right? So if we were to randomly draw somebody out of the crowd, bring them up here and start asking them about the two essential days of their lives, we would learn lots about them, but we would not have the essence of that person's life story. So focusing our attention on a couple days of anyone's life is an incomplete picture. And then when we do go into the stories in the Gospels, when we do follow the story of Jesus, we largely focus on one specific aspect of Jesus in those stories. We read those stories looking for Jesus' divinity in the stories, his God status in the stories. Because when we can find that then that gives proof that Jesus is who he says he was, and that leads us down the winding trail toward the last couple of days of Jesus' life. When we do this, though, we are subtly diminishing and suppressing what is most compelling, his humanity. Now, don't hear me wrong. In no way am I trying to say Jesus wasn't or isn't God. He is. The scriptures tell us this. But equally and with the same weight, the scriptures tell us that he was fully man. An absolute, complete human being. So, that's hard for us to process sometimes. Because, like, when you, when you mash the two words human and God together, you have Jesus. But to say human God feels a little awkward, right? All kinds of interesting things that start happening when you mash those two words together. But that is what the Bible describes Jesus as. That's who he was. And we subtly suppress and diminish the human aspect in favor of the divine aspect. And when we do that, we must realize that we are also subtly doing the same thing to ourselves. So we come to faith in Christ. And then we feel like, okay, my forever, my eternity now is settled What's going to happen to me forever is, is all settled. What am I supposed to do with my humanity? And so we try to suppress and diminish that, try to put ourselves in this narrow lane, and we're just kind of trying to walk this path that says, essentially, if I could just be a good little boy, if I can just be a good little girl and endure my humanity, then I get to die. (laughs) And graduate into eternity with God, where I no longer have to deal with this sin-infested cesspool of a species that I seem to find myself a part of. There are problems with trying to live this way. Several that are critical. The first one is that humans, you and I, Everyone is human, right, in here? 
were created in the image of God. In his likeness. So right from the get-go, we must understand that humanity bears God's image on this planet. And he put us here. It must matter more than just trying to endure it so that we can escape it. Okay? So, when we go back to the very, very beginning of our story, back to the very beginning of Genesis, we have a couple of people. One's named Adam, the other one's named Eve. And we have this glimpse at the very beginning of these two people experiencing perfection. Sin wasn't something that had been invented yet. Rebellion was unknown. These creatures were perfect and perfectly intertwined with God. The Father was within them, surrounding them, sustaining them, among them, collaborating with them in life on planet Earth. Everything was as it should be. Everything was as it was intended to be by God. They had unimpeded and instant access to God. And God had unimpeded instant access to them. That little glimpse is how it was supposed to be for us always. This state of perfection where there isn't anything broken and there isn't anything fragmented and there isn't anything missing would later have a name. Shalom. The peace and order of God in all times, in all places, and in all things. That was our created state. That is what was supposed to be normal for us. Always. But we kind of know what happened. We get to the third chapter of Genesis, so only a few pages into the Bible. And we have the story of the fall of man. And I don't need to retell the story of the fall of man because we probably all know it. But I do want to talk about one certain aspect of it. Because within it, I find probably the largest cosmic irony ever in human history. So the serpent is having a conversation with these two perfect people, Adam and Eve, and he's telling them, if you will just eat this forbidden fruit. So in other words, if you will simply do the one thing in all of the world that you were asked not to do, the one thing, if you will do that, you will become like God. What I find to be the Tremendous irony in that is that somehow they had forgotten that they already were. And so they ate. And as the juice of rebellion flowed into their bodies, a fragmentation happened. No longer were humanity and divinity intertwined and collaborating in a state of shalom. It was fragmented and broken apart. Man was separated from God. 
And we go a few chapters further into the book of Genesis prior to the flood of Noah. And the Bible begins to describe humanity as wicked and evil and animal-like and subhuman. That's a big deal. Because separated from God, mankind then took what it traded, the knowledge of good and evil, to try to recreate shalom on its own terms without God. And it's not possible. And we're still trying. And it's not possible. Because human beings weren't created to be without God. It was never meant to be that way. That's not our normal state. So, when we try to just on our own manage our behavior, try to keep our sin under control, be a good little boy and a good little girl, and try to endure this humanity so that we can die and be restored to God, we're missing the point. The second reason that living that way is not possible is Jesus. Jesus is known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. If this is a sin-infested, hopeless cesspool of a, cesspool of a species, why come to be with us? If it didn't matter to God, then why incarnate himself and become fully one of us? Why be something that you have rejected utterly? Jesus came to restore and reclaim humanity. Humanity matters to God. So when we try to simply endure it so that we can escape it, again, we're missing the point. And the third reason that it's almost impossible to live successfully that way, this escapist idea, is where we're trying to get eternity. What is that? What are we talking about when we talk about eternity? Eternity is something that is very difficult to name. Eternity isn't something that can be described by time. Eternity never, ever, ever ends. Can you imagine that? Like if we were to... Think of the largest amount of time that we can even comprehend. Let's say 100 trillion years. That would not even be a blip on the radar of eternity. It never ends. Or as Taylor Swift told us several years ago, we are never, ever, ever Getting back together. (laughs) Like ever. So she's saying, for eternity, we're never getting back together. 
Eternity can't be named by time because it encompasses all of time, which means we are already there. We are already in eternity. Right now is a part of eternity. There's nowhere to escape to. We are in it and right now matters. Everything about our humanity matters. So, what about this kingdom that Jesus talked about all the time? Jesus' kingdom language set the hearts of his hearers on fire. There's a reason. They were looking for somebody who was saying the kinds of things he was saying. They were praying for someone who was saying the kinds of things that he was saying. They were looking for God and begging and crying out to God to send the Messiah. And the Messiah, in their worldview, was a very specific kind of person. This person would be anointed by God, devout, holy, a good communicator, and charismatic enough to draw a crowd. And that last piece was essential because he would use this gifting and anointing to draw the true together so that they would rise up and revolt against oppression. And in this case, in the first century, we're talking about the Roman Empire. So against all odds, this figure would gather the true and they would revolt against Rome and throw them out of the land and restore the land to God where it could be purified. So when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom, they are listening. Ironically, the way that they were looking at Jesus and what they were expecting potentially of him is essentially the same today. Right? So like from a cosmic, ultimate reality perspective, we are essentially looking for Jesus to come riding in here on a white horse and beat up the bad guys and establish his kingdom where he will rule and reign forever. Now, amen. Let it be so today. But we have to consider exactly where is Jesus going to do this, if not on earth, among humans. So when we're trying to escape, again, we're missing the point, the gift of our humanity. And so, it's not just about like this cosmic ultimate reality. All we have to do is look at the content of the last five prayers. Like all we have to do is consider what we've talked to God about this week. There may have been beautiful times of worship, wonderful times of fellowship, but if we distill things down to its essential core, we find that we are ultimately asking Jesus to come beat up the bad guys and make our lives better. Come beat up the bad guys in our friends' and family's life and make it better. Come remove this obstacle out of my path and make my life better. 
the thing is, this doesn't seem to be at all the kind of kingdom Jesus was talking about. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was asked straight up, directly, about the kingdom, because he's talking about it all the time. So he's asked directly about the kingdom that he's talking about and when it's going to happen. And Jesus responded to that question by saying, and I'm quoting from the scriptures, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. No one will be able to say, look, here it is, or there, over there. For the kingdom of God is within and among you. Which means the kingdom is happening now, and it very much involves human beings. It's ultimately a human collaboration with God. It ultimately ends up here with Jesus ruling and reigning forever. This is what the scriptures say. This isn't like my idea. This is what the scriptures say. This is something that's happening now. Which means, since we are all in now, that we're a part of this story, and it matters that we are human. So, how do we understand this? How do we switch and reframe our thinking from this escapist mentality? Like, let me just endure this so that I can get out of here and begin to understand that getting out of here is an excuse. We are not supposed to be trying to get out of here. We're supposed to be ushering in this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is a big story. What a privilege that we are invited into it and that we can be a part of it. So how do we access it, though? Like if the kingdom is within and among us, but you can't point it out, how do we operate in it? How does it work? How do we access this? To get at this, we have to look at it apophatically. Now, that's a big word. When we describe something, we are usually using affirmative terms to make the description. It is like that. It is this. That's looking at things cataphatically. To look at things apophatically means that you arrive at the same place by naming what something is not. So if we were to say the kingdom Jesus was talking about is light and life and good news, then the opposite of that would be death and darkness and destruction, which happens to be a pretty good description of the kingdom of darkness in this world. How does that continue to proliferate? How is it that darkness can perpetuate itself? Why hasn't it been stamped out of the world? 
There are any number of ways we could use to describe what we're talking about, but let's talk about how pandemics get going. A human being comes into contact with a virus or some other disease agent that humanity has no experience with. So there's not like a natural immunity to it. And this person becomes infected and begins to incubate it. But they don't know they're sick. And so maybe they cook dinner for their family. And maybe at dinner they're not feeling so well and they sneeze. Now the whole family's infected. Nobody knows that they're sick yet. And so the kids, they go to school. And maybe they're not feeling well, and they sneeze. Now we have several classrooms infected who then take this back to their families and infect them. And no one knows that in one week, they will all be dead. And so people get on planes, and this thing is airborne now, and it's landing around the world, and no one knows there's a problem until people start to die. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus was talking about is that in reverse. Rather than spreading and proliferating around the world and killing, it brings life and good news and light to all things. It restores shalom. It restores the normal created state we were meant to live in. And it's incredibly infectious because it's what we were made for. It's our natural habitat. It spreads and proliferates throughout the world. So, the thing about a talk like this is that I can't leave you with a recipe. I cannot leave you with the three laws and the four precepts, right? And the nine tips and tricks that if you will do them every other day, every other month, will work for you. That's not how the faith journey nor the kingdom works. It encompasses everything. Everything about you. Every thought, every word, and every deed of your lives. It's all of it. So let's take words, for example. A husband and wife are having a conversation. Something gets misunderstood. Something gets said with the wrong tone of voice. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Five minutes later, you have two people who are deeply in love with each other, screaming at each other, saying things that should never be said to another human being. Five minutes after that, you have plates flying, you have doors slamming, you have people leaving. We see how words so quickly bring darkness and how fast it infects us and our relationships because we create our realities from our words 
And there's a reason for this. We were created in the image of God. When God speaks, things happen. When we speak, things happen. So if in the story we just talked about, one of the partners said, whoa, 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 let's slow this train down. I'm sorry. I love you. A completely different reality has been created. One of light and life and good news and restoration to wholeness and unity. We get to choose what we're going to participate in. And we can see that we can continue to perpetuate darkness by participating in that kingdom or completely and utterly replacing it with shalom. Completely and utterly replacing it with light and life and good news. The kingdom that is within and among us right now. And it's not just words. It's every thought, every word, and every deed. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. That is a preservative. We are holding things together. Jesus said we are the light of the world. Light exposes darkness and shows it for what it is. This is all happening right now. This is happening within and among us as we speak continually. We get to choose what we're going to participate in. So, of the many stories in the Gospels that we could choose to talk about Jesus operating in a fallen world, but operating successfully in it, sinlessly, as people were created to be, we could choose lots of stories, but maybe the events that happened in Bethany are most appropriate. So there, there were two sisters. One was named Mary, and the other one was named Martha. You may have heard of them. They're kind of famous. You know, Mary's the one that um, she would sit at Jesus' feet and absorb his teaching and just listen to him. And her, her sister Martha, she's the one that was busy working and becoming frustrated. Those sisters. They sent a message to Jesus. Our brother and your friend, Lazarus, is very sick. Now, they couldn't just text that to Jesus. So it took a minute for the word to find Jesus. And then it took him a couple of days to kind of finish up what he was doing and begin to move toward Bethany. And in that span of time, Lazarus died. So when Jesus finally got to Bethany, like he's walking in up the trail, Bethany actually still exists. And it's just a, like a little village on the Mount of Olives, so a suburb of Jerusalem. It is today and was then a suburb of Jerusalem. So when Jesus starts winding his way up the path, word spreads. He's a popular rabbi. Everyone in the village is grieving. So word gets to the sisters that Jesus is coming into the village. 
The funny thing is that Mary, the one who like sat at his feet and absorbed his teachings, she didn't move. It was Martha who jumped up and ran out to find Jesus. And when she did find him on the path, she fell down in front of him and said, if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. All of the sudden, we are a part of this story. All of a sudden, the Bible becomes a mirror because we have all said those kinds of things. We have all held that posture of heart within us, right? Jesus, if you had just been here, my marriage wouldn't have fallen apart. Jesus, if you had just been here, I wouldn't have lost my job. Jesus, if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus responded to Martha. So since we've all held that posture toward God, we should look at Jesus' response because this is God's response to that posture. Jesus, with compassion, looks at Martha and says, Lazarus will rise again. Mary, or Martha, I'm sorry, basically dismisses the idea. She says that she knows that Jesus is God's son and that Lazarus will rise in the resurrection, right? So in eternity. She has no concept that he might be talking about something now and immediate. And so she says that, and Jesus responds to that. He tells her that he is the resurrection and the life, and that which has died will live even though it has died which is an incredibly cryptic thing to say to a grieving woman. So what's going on here? Now all of a sudden, this well-worn story that we thought we knew so well has complications. What's happening? Mary, the one who didn't get up and run to Jesus, eventually does, and she runs out and falls at Jesus' feet and says the same thing. If you had just been here. This wouldn't have happened. And it's here that we encounter the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, of course, of course, Jesus is feeling human emotions. Of course, he's sad. He's lost a friend. He's seeing his his other friends grieving over this. But it goes deeper because Jesus has an awareness and an understanding that Lazarus, his essence, his presence, his voice, his spirit are missing from the world. And it was never, ever supposed to be that way for us. And so, yes, Jesus wept. But the Bible goes on to describe Jesus as troubled. As moved in his spirit over this. Which brings us to the core ancient Greek word, anabramisato. That is the original word used to describe Jesus being troubled and moved in his spirit. And it literally means Jesus was angry inside. What is that all about? We have lots of twists and turns and complications in this story. What is going on here? 
Jesus asks to be taken to the tomb. And so they begin to lead him. The sisters are processing. Jesus is following. The village is all kind of coming along. They all knew Lazarus. They all know who Jesus is. They all gather at the tomb. And then Jesus says something basically unthinkable. Open it up. Now, that's weird. Even today, we are not in the habit of opening graves. And this is what Jesus is asking them to do. So they're not sure exactly what's going on. And it's Martha, the one who ran out to find him in the first place, that steps forward. And she says, Lord, the problem, the thing is, he's been dead for four days. He stinks. It's here that we begin to get clues about why Jesus is so troubled inside. Because Jesus says, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God in all of this if you would just believe me? And then to clarify, he tells them, roll away the stone. So, a couple of the guys probably, you know, put their hand over their nose and start pushing the stone away. And once the stone is pushed away, they are expecting this fresh, wet, aromatic, pungent aroma to come spilling out of the cave. And, like, we know this story from the scriptures, but they have no idea what's going on. So the only thing that they can be expecting is that Jesus is going to go into the tomb and sit with the body of Lazarus and pay his respects, which has all kinds of complications of its own because Jesus is a rabbi. And if he touches a corpse, he's going to make himself unclean. But apparently Jesus is going to go in and pay his respects, clean or unclean. And it's a noble thing. This is what they're expecting. But rather than stepping into the tomb, Jesus does something different. He calls into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. Okay. Let's all become villagers for a second. <laughs> We're all in Bethany. We've just watched this whole thing go down. The whole thing has been weird. And now Jesus is calling a corpse. We don't know how much time passed. Five seconds? Ten? Fifteen? We don't know. What are you doing? You're looking at the mouth of the cave. You're looking at the rabbi. You're looking back to the tomb. You're looking at each other. And when a linen-wrapped figure appears in the mouth of the cave, what are you going to do? You're going to gasp just like they must have done, right? Some of you are going to say loud, long 
expletives <laughs> referring to human waste, perhaps with the word holy in front of it. Right? Because somehow the corpse of Lazarus became Lazarus again. That which had died lived even though it had died. Pretty much exactly as Jesus said it would. So, think about your own heart for a second. How are things going for you? How has the last month been for you? How was the summer? What's it been like this year for your heart? What has died in you? What is rotting inside of you because you were betrayed? Or because you were abused? What has become a carcass? Because life has simply beaten to death the person you once were. And taken your dreams along with it. Could that which has died live even though it has died? It's actually very important that it can. Because the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ hinges upon this. That that which has died can live even though it has died. That restoration and reintegration to wholeness can happen. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw this fragmentation happen in our species. And we recreated a different reality for ourselves. One that we were never supposed to experience. Humanity and divinity were always supposed to be intertwined. That's what is supposed to be normal. And that is what we see in Jesus. Complete integration. So in Jesus, we have the first person to walk up on this planet without sin as they were created to be since Adam and Eve. So we look at Jesus as an incredible anomaly when Jesus looked like what humanity was always supposed to be. That's what normal Humanity is supposed to be. When we talk about Christ-like, we're not talking about inspiration or aspiration. We're talking about a state of being that occurs as we are sanctified and renewed, made new again, renewed every day in his likeness. This is all in the Bible. This is the gospel story. It's the invitation. 
Rather than using our faith to escape hell and escape humanity, we should understand that the offer of the gospel is the restoration of right now and every right now that happens for eternity. We are being made new. We are being renewed and made into the likeness of our Savior. We are being restored to who we were created to be all along. This is the offer of the gospel. So it's important that that which has died could live even though it has died inside of you every day. So, I'm going to close in prayer. The thing about closing in prayer is that you check out. Like it's over. And you check out. But I'm hoping that we traveled here to be with you in New York today with something that you can't stop thinking about from now on. What a completely restored you would be like. What actually being Christ-like might look like. Because it's important that we begin to understand who we are in this world and what it is we are ushering in in this world. And that starts with our own hearts. It starts with our own restoration. And then it spills over into our families because now we're sneezing this into our families and we're sneezing light and life and good news. And it's contagious and it's infectious because it restores us to who we were made to be. And then it spills out of our families and infects our churches and infects our workplace. And then it overruns the world. And then we have on earth as it is in heaven. This is why we are here. And this is what we are supposed to be doing. So, Jesus, we invite all of that We want all of it. Every bit of you. The scriptures are audacious enough to tell us that the same spirit that raised you from the dead dwells in us. If that's true, then that which has died can live even though it has died. So come, Holy Spirit, we ask that you infect us with light and life and good news and that we perpetuate it to the world. And we ask this in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.